The title for tonight's talk is Bowing as an Act of Transformation. And be a little patient with me. I'll try to explain this. It, it sounds a little peculiar, doesn't it, that bowing is an act of transformation? In fact, most of the time when we bow, we express, at least fleetingly, at that moment, a sense of conformity, of um, at times even submission to a, another power. And then, after doing that, we go on as usual. Uh, that's uh, how it often happens. In, in church, in, in Buddhist ceremonies, and in all kinds of situations. Tonight I want to look into a different sort of bowing. A bowing that's an expression not of compliance, but of transformation. Not of submission, but of change, almost of subversion. This different kind of bow. I will call a non-dual bow. I got an inspiration for this talk and this thought, this theme. A couple of weeks ago, I was reading a publication that's relatively new. Some of you may know it. Mm -hmm. uh, Buddha Dharma is called. And um, there is this article in a section called Reader's Exchange. So I suppose it's kind of a reader who sent a letter and it was important enough to turn into an article. And the, the name of the author is Melody Irma Child Chavis. To know who she is. This is what he said and jumped out of the for me. He says, to me, the unity of our political Buddhist practice is expressed in a bow. We bow down in acceptance of what is. And we get right back up again, ready to do what needs to be done. So I'll spend some time trying to milk that in some way. For me, it was a very revealing thing. You know, there are these moments when you suddenly see something clearly. And whatever the intention of the author is, what I saw was the Baron in a completely different light as a gesture embracing both, both surrender and engagement. 
both faith and inquiry, both acceptance and at times a necessary disobedience as well. And again, going back to what uh, this writer said, it's a It's of the Tao includes the two movements. You cannot do it in only with only one movement. If you come down, you've got to come back right up again. And when you complete the two, the two movements, then there's a radical transformation. If you really do the two movements as they in in good faith with all your heart. The transformation can only occur if the two movements are integrated in one meaningful whole. We bow down in reverence to the reality of what is in reverence of things as they are. Like them or not like them. If we don't do that, we are bound to continue to act out our old patterns of life. You know, all the stuff that we've been doing, I mean, that I've been doing, you know, the reactivity, the self-aggrandizement, all the stuff that we've been indoctrinated in or self-indoctrinated uh, ourselves with, all of the above, without the bowing down, we're doomed to repeat. Without stopping to look at things as they actually are inside us and outside. It's this endless, recurrent repetition of stuff that we catch ourselves. I did it again. So the coming down is essential. And so is the coming back up again. Without, if we just stay down and don't honor the coming, well, we may come up physically, but we don't honor the part of coming back up, we are, we are paralyzed. We acknowledge what is, but we stay paralyzed. It's my grandson taught me the word is chilling out. I don't know this is true in Philadelphia too, but it's used in Brooklyn. Chilling out. In other words, unwilling to get involved in anything, inner or outer. So, we bow down in reverence, but there are no fruits. No fulfillment of that, no transformation. 
as a result of whatever we discover, whatever we investigate, whatever we came in touch with. Because if we really and truly come back down, one thing that we inevitably touch is compassion, is the suffering that's in us and in so many others. Looking at things as they are is looking at suffering in the face. If you come back up again, and if you've really been there, it's, it's, a, it's a sin to ignore that suffering, erase it, and act as if you hadn't seen it. So we have to come back and act from that which we've discovered. Engage in any way. And I'm not saying how we need to engage. That's another story altogether. For each one of us, how, what's the appropriate engagement in coming back up again? It varies. For some, the engagement needs to be with our inner life. For some, what we discover in coming down is something about our inner life that needs to be addressed. And that's the work to be done. For others, coming back, coming down, there is a, a sense of suffering in the world. Coming back up, the, the only natural thing to do is to ask oneself, what is there for me to do about this? And I, I, there's no universal answer that covers everybody. So, what I have been using really as a metaphor here from that uh, article that I read in Buddha Dharma, this bowing, coming back up, of course, it's a metaphor for the practice. The bowing down stands for the sitting practice very clearly. That's what we do in the sitting practice. The coming back up again stands largely for life. And to some extent to things that we need to do in our sitting practice. But the, the, the sitting practice is mostly, primarily, just let's see how things are. And then we have the rest of the day of whatever if it's in a, in a week-long retreat, then we have all the other weeks. If it's a, a one-hour sit, then we have the next hours to do what needs to be done. To, and the two parts need to be integrated. 
Let me, let me talk a little bit more specifically about the city. Surely, as I said, sitting is an opportunity to see things as they are. But our experience in sitting is quite varied. Very often, when we sit, instead of having these wonderful insights into the nature of things and into our mind, we are, we are sitting there feeling miserable, caught in a pattern of resistance. So what do we do with that? What do we do when we expect receptivity towards things as they are? And what we get is a clear sense that the mind doesn't want to go there. That the mind would much happier be doing whatever activity distracts us rather than looking at the moment. Even the breath feels like a threat. Understandably, because, you know, between two breaths, you could discover something that you didn't want to discover. Because that's what the resistance is about. So, for some, this invitation to be with things as they are turns out to be an exploration of how I don't want to go there. What do we do with that? I've had, like everybody has a lot of trouble with this, and uh, I heard teachers sort of uh, give these easy answers. And, you know. and in the end, the teachers were right. The answers were rather simple, but it's just that the mind finds it hard to just accept that the, what's happening right now is that I'm resisting. And that's all there is to it. A need to shift one's attitude so that rather than telling ourselves, I'm wasting my time, this is no good, say, hey, wait a moment. What's happening right now is there's resistance this unwillingness to go there. Can I open up 
to this unwillingness to go there. That's what's happening. And there's a lot to be discovered in that. Not analyzing it, not thinking about it, but opening our hearts to that. So, you know, when the mind starts developing these strategies of, to run away from the moment, the, the mind starts uh, trying to see, say, the breath, if that's what the focus of attention is, see the breath as something precious and special. Shape it in a certain way so that it it feels a little better than yesterday and tells itself, hey, today my breath is better than yesterday or whatever. And, and, and all these <laughs> silly strategies not to do anything, not to condemn the mind. See, wonderful. Here I have an opportunity to see how desperate the mind is not to be here and really feel that desperation. Nothing wrong with that. Understandable. Absolutely. The truth of things is that the practice is something that feels threatening to each one of us when it's done properly. It's a, the practice always tries to undermine our defenses. So no wonder our defenses fight back. So. Just, just look into that. Just see that. See what the mind is doing. And as we do that, then the opportunity arises to open up our mind and our hearts. And really, bowing down to things as they are. Let me read from one of the sutras, one of the scriptures. This is from a collection that's called the Sutanipata. And um, it's actually in the form of a, a poem. It's about uh, the sort of things that the mind does and that we need to, to examine, to see doing it. Having seen forms that delight the mind and having seen those that give no delight, dispel the path of lust towards the delightful and do not soil the mind by thinking the other is displeasing me. In other words, stop or at least slow down this relentless chase after delight. See if you can do it. Notice how it happens and see if you can slow it down. Next uh, verses are about sounds. 
having heard sounds both pleasant and raucous, do not be enthralled with the pleasant sound. Dispel the course of hate towards the raucous. And do not soil the mind by thinking, this one is displeasing me. Goes on to other senses. Having smelled a fragrant, delightful scent, and having smelt a putrid stench, dispel aversion towards the stench, and do not yield to desire for the lovely. You see, you can see how these things prevent us from opening up. And the path to open up is precisely to soften this constant discrimination between what I like and what I don't like, what I want and what I want to get rid of. Having enjoyed a sweet, delicious taste and having sometimes tastes, taste what is bitter, do not greedily enjoy the sweet taste do not feel, do not feed aversion towards the bitter. When touched by pleasant contact, do not be enthralled. Do not tremble when touched by pain. Look evenly on both the pleasant and the painful, not drawn or repelled by anything. So this is a very basic fundamental teaching which really uh, refers to something that constantly comes up in the course of our sitting. The search for that which we prefer, that we like. Now, very important to realize that the injunctions in that um, uh, Sutra are not commandments in the sense of of the Christian tradition. Um, we have to see very clearly that the teachings of a Buddha do not come from a puritanical cultural context. So what the Buddha is saying is not that you should not do this and that and that. He's saying, if you don't do that, you'll be much better off. That's what he's saying. In fact, another thing to keep in mind is that this pursuit of preferences in the course of uh, a sitting with the smells, uh, of course, tastes, we don't generally sit with tasting something. But we could if we just had lunch, etc. This pursuit of preferences is fed by the agenda of the I. 
because as we reach out for that which we want, we puff up ourself. Ourself becomes the center of attention. The reaching out to grasp something, the hand that grasps is attached to the arm that's attached to the eye. And the Buddha makes very clear that it's it's not that we reject gladness, on the contrary. There is a, another form of gladness, another form of delight that has nothing to do with the I, with the self, that we can open up to if and when we stop, stop this pursuit of what we want. And he makes that very clear in another sutra in the same collection. He says, now bhikkhus, bhikkhus means uh, monks. Now bhikkhus, how does one dwell diligently? That is, dwell in the sit. How does one sit appropriately? If one dwells with restraint over the eye faculty, the mind is not soiled among forms cognizable by the eye. When the mind is not soiled, gladness is born. So there's nothing wrong with gladness. There's a different kind of gladness that comes from not pursuing the preferences. When one is gladdened, Rapture is born. With the mind uplifted by rapture, the body becomes tranquil. One tranquil in body experiences happiness. The mind of one who is happy becomes concentrated. When the mind is concentrated, phenomena become manifest. That's a very interesting sentence. When the mind becomes concentrated, phenomena become manifest. We begin to see things that were invisible to us. That was my comment. Because phenomena become manifest, one is reckoned as one who dwells diligently. And uh, the sutra goes on. This was referring to the eye senses, goes on to the ears, to the sounds, that is, to the taste, to the smells, to the touch. 
all this may sound strange to those who haven't uh, practiced. But those of us who practice for a long time or even for a short time know that this is this extraordinary paradox that when we stop chasing after preferences, when we stop clinging, what becomes available to us, and I'm repeating what the Buddha said, uh, what becomes available to us is a different kind of delight. One delight that comes to us for free, that comes to us from freedom itself. So, I was referring then to what happens during the sittings, during the formal practice. And what happens afterwards? Well, as I said in the beginning, sometimes we think, well, you know, I sat for an hour. It was nice. I had this delight, etc. Practice is over. Now I go back to my usual reckless behavior. It's as if we, we look at the practice as a doing kind of a, a penance, you know, an austerity. I've done it. It was tough. At times it was the, there was delight. Other times it was hard. But I've done it. Finished. <coughs> that is bowing down without coming back up in any integral way. That is doing a dual practice. But if we are going to do an, a non-dual practice, what we have to do is to bring up the awareness that we discovered or honed or cultivated in the sitting, we have to bring it back to real life. The mind being now concentrated, as the Buddha was saying a moment ago, as I was reading him a moment ago, the mind that's capable of seeing into phenomena, to, capable of making phenomena manifest, is precisely the kind of mind that we need as a companion, as a guide in our daily life. So bring it to our daily life. Don't leave it in the corner of your room where you sit. And having seen, for instance, having seen in the sick how the tyranny of I, of the ego, can really spoil the practice, notice how the same tyranny can spoil the life. This 
living our lives in order to implement the agenda of the ego. Ridiculous. I just pause for a moment and think how often I do that. How often I do that. So, so, so many ways. I'm just, just remembering, for instance, a, a, a fresh thing. Uh, uh, me and my partner have three children and uh, two daughters. And they have themselves eight children, our grandchildren. And, you know, the relationship with our children are, are not always smooth. And, and so, for instance, a couple of days ago, my youngest daughter calls me up and, and she was uh, kind of upset at me. I could feel immediately, you know, in, in, in my ego, that wish to change her way of seeing me. And of course, change the way of seeing myself, because as she makes some comments that are not so um, flattering about me, <laughs> hey, how can I get her to say something nice? The tendency is, that's ridiculous, you know. It's ridiculous. That's not the, the way of, of managing one's life. It's important that I do the right thing, what's helpful to all of us, but not just because I want to look good to my daughter. That's a very poor motivation. So, seeing through the motivations that guide our lives. In this uh, last part of the talk, I wanted to refer a little bit to the war, which has, has been, it's going to be a recurrent theme, too, in uh, our interaction this weekend. I'm talking about the war that I was going to say just, just finished, but uh, I think our president decided that it hasn't finished, right? Somehow. It's, um, I mean, the hostilities have finished, but the war is still officially on, whatever. Um, Melody Irma Child Chavis, the woman who writes this article in uh, Buddha Dharma, refers to her own difficulties about the war very clearly and explicitly in her article. So let me just uh, read some of what she says. She's talking about how she lives or lived the war inside herself. My nervous system seemed to command 
do something. I felt I had to try to stop the war. So, with many others, I wrote letters and faxes and emails, and I read articles, marched, passed out leaf leaflets, and marched some more. These are all good things to do, of course. But I really took a deep breath to relieve the dread that clamped my chest. My fear spiraled, spiraled higher in tighter and tighter circles. I myself completely went to war. The war rampaged in my brain during my distracted days and at night in my restless dreams. I dreamt I was clinging to the outside of a runaway train engine, trying to pull it back as it went smashing through crowds of people whose blood was flying up from the tracks and splattering all over me. It's a hard image, but uh, it rings very true to me, and I'll, um, I'll share some experiences of this kind, of my own, uh, sometime tomorrow. So, you, it's easy to see how an event like the war, so, so horrendous, of course, can spiral within our mind and build up even more inner horror in forms of dreams, of restlessness, of unhappiness. What can the practice offer? And what the practice offers so very clearly is bowing down and coming back up again. And if we really, as I was trying to, to communicate to you, if we really get down and go deep into how things are, when we come back up, it's something else. And, and that happened to the writer of this article as well. She says that through the practice, she found a way of shifting away from this duality, this duality of the war. Because nothing more dual than a war, of course. Horrendous. And, and center herself in that inner peace that the practice brings. And from there, look at the war. So in the closing paragraph, she says, ah, mm. <laughs> in the article, she also tells 
some of the reasons why war has been so horrendous for her. Her father died in World War II. He was killed in the war. Her stepfather fought in Korea and he came back but coming back, he was one of the people that, have, that were deliberately exposed to uh, nuclear radiation from explosions in Nevada, actually, as ex part of experiments. And he died of cancer uh, out of that. So you can see how her inner war was fed by all of this. So making actually peace with the war, peace with things as they are, which doesn't mean, of course, being passive, but coming to, to one's center around the war requires also bringing that personal history into one's consciousness. Letting the practice manifest phenomena. Phenomena here have pain at the loss of two fathers. Having done that, she says, even in a time of war, I picture myself as a little girl waiting for my two fathers to come home from the wars. And then I can feel compassion. For all of us, everywhere, those driven to war and those driven mad by war. What I find again, very revealing about this article, is, is the understanding that we need to go into the darkness to come back again with, with an inner glow. I'll, I'll talk much more about that tomorrow. Tonight, in closing, I want to introduce you to a, a great love of mine. Maybe some of you know her. Her name is Etty Hilusung. She wrote a book called An, An uh, Unfinished Life. Etty was a, a woman born in Holland, Jewish, and uh, during the Nazi occupation, she, of course, was confined with many others in the concentration camp. She 
started being put in the concentration camp. This is a more complicated story, but she, she entered first time the concentration camp at age 27. She was gassed in Auschwitz at 29. And she wrote this extraordinary book, where instead of desperation, you see an incredible, incredible glow. And, and if you read the book, I mean, you understand that. I mean, she tells, tells about the horrors. She can go beyond the horrors. I think you better let her speak for herself. I'll be reading more of Etty in the next couple of days. She's in Westerbrook, which is um, not one of the horrend most horrendous concentration camps. It's what's called a, a transit camp, where they gather people, not where they kill them. In Holland, Westerbrook is in Holland. And then it suddenly happened. I was able to feel the contours of this, these times with my fingertips. Feel the contours of these times with my fingertips. How is it that this, this stretch of heathland surrounded by barbed wire through which so much human misery has flooded, nevertheless, remains inscribed in my memory as something almost lovely. How is it that my spirit, far from being suppressed, seemed to grow lighter and brighter there? Uh, at this, when she writes this, she's back in Amsterdam because of a strange situation that allowed her to go in and out of the transit camp. It is because I read the signs of the time and they did not seem meaningless to me. Suddenly my... Sorry. Surrounded by my writers and poets, that's her friends in Amsterdam, and the flowers on my desk, I loved life. And there, among the barracks, full of hunted and persecuted people, I found confirmation, confirmation of my love of life. Life in those drafty barracks was no other than life in this protected, peaceful room. Not for one moment was I cut off from the life I was said to have left behind. 
There was simply, simply one great meaningful whole. Will I be able to describe all that one day? Because he had no idea that her words were going to be read right here, right now, to you. Will I be able to describe all that one day? So that others can feel too how lovely and worth living and just, yes, just, life really is. Let's just sit for a few minutes together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.